Are the prosecutors in the Chad DeBell case forum shopping? Well, Chad DeBell believes so. The man charged with the death of his three kids doesn't want the jury to see the crime scene. Is the theory that the Murdochs did it now DOA in the Stephen Smith death case? An accused serial killer gets advice from a convicted serial killer. And we have a story, unfortunately, of an attorney gone bad. And then finally, our dumb criminal of the day. Let's talk about it. Good day, everyone. My name is Scott Reich, and this is Crime Talk. Thanks for joining us. You know the drill. Subscribe if you haven't, like if you do, leave me a comment below, and make sure you hit that little bell for notifications. Well, because they're still messing with us on that algorithm. We would greatly appreciate it. All right, let's go ahead and um, mention a couple of things. Last night, we had our live show. I want to thank everybody for showing up. And then we had our Patreon show. I want to thank everybody for showing up and being a Patreon. We greatly appreciate that. Well, one of the conversations that we were having last night was in regards to commercial air travel and how really, well, I hate it, which is one of the reasons why, well, we have Crime Talk 1. Let me give you an example of what I hate about commercial air travel. I'm ready to be over here. Sorry, everybody. Are you serious? Oh. Oh. Okay, let me look at that. Let me look at that. I don't give a f. No. I gotta go pee. I don't give a f. Do not have it on Let me pass. Yep, that's it, ladies and gentlemen. That's why I hate commercial air travel. Anyway, let's go ahead and uh, get to the docket today. So let's please open the record for November 22nd, 2023. And oh yes, this will be our last show for the week because Thanksgiving is tomorrow. Wish everyone in your family from the Crime Talk family here a happy Thanksgiving. All right, first on the docket, are the prosecutors in the Chad Day Bell case forum shopping? Well. Chad Daybell and his attorney sure believe so. As you may recall, we brought you the story that, as you may recall, the venue was changed from Madison County, Idaho, over to Ada County, Idaho, as it related to the trial for Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell. Obviously, those two cases were severed, and Lori Vallow's case went first up in Ada, Idaho. We went out there. Heck, I still have the little ticket there right here on this table from when we went out there and observed the proceedings live. Well, the prosecutors did not want to do that case in Idaho. And the reason being was they kept saying it was really expensive and it was really inconvenient for them to not have access to their offices. And did I mention they said it was really expensive? Well, Judge Boyce denied all those motions, and he said, we're going to do the trial in Ada, Idaho. And then out of the blue, just last week, and we brought you this story, the prosecutors want to move the case back to Madison County there in Idaho. Once again, citing that, hey, it's really too expensive. Let's do anything other than do Ada, Idaho, because did they mention it was really expensive? And so they said, Judge, please reconsider, because we really don't have any good reason for it. Um, but other than it's really expensive. 
And so Chad Daybell, through his attorney, John Pryor, filed an objection, a response to the motion to reconsider. And basically the motion states, hey, they provided no legal authority for a motion to reconsider, and therefore uh, the motion should be denied. Chad Day Bell, through his attorney, states that uh, the court went through an extensive analysis and ruling that a change of venue was warranted, uh, ultimately moving the case to Ada County. And the one issue they basically stated was that there were some conversations in the newspaper about uh, people are watching it, a, a potential juror, somebody watched something, and therefore it doesn't really matter where we do the trial, there's going to be exposure to it. Oh, and it's really expensive. Well, Mr. Pryor says, are you kidding me? One person, one isolated incident from a newspaper report? Not really exactly the most accurate uh, source of reporting here. Anyway, they so they said they want to move it um, back to uh, eastern Idaho and is basically forum shopping to gain an advantage in the upcoming trial, as uh, Chad Daybell alleges. And Chad Daybell basically alleges that this last-minute grandstanding is an attempt to cause potential further delay by seeking a change of venue four months before this trial is supposed to begin. Now, Mr. Pryor reserves the right to provide further argument at a hearing on this matter if the court needs further hearing. But, Mr. Pryor says, in the event that the court allows this motion to reconsider to proceed and the state supplements their motion with additional evidence or attempts to present witnesses' testimony, the defense would request a continuance, potentially delaying not only the motions hearing, but possibly even the trial even further. Come on, prosecution, just go try the case. I get it's expensive, but in the famous words of my first boss in the Marine Corps when I said, hey, isn't this kind of expensive? His response to me was, justice is expensive. They always find money for justice. Go find the money from the county commissioners, pay the bill, and get this case going. Next, Chad Dorman doesn't want the jury to see, well, what he did. So Chad Dorman is facing the death penalty for allegedly shooting his uh, three children, ages three, four, and seven, in front of his wife and his stepdaughter. Now, Mr. Dorman's lawyers are doing what they're supposed to do, and they're asking the court to avoid describing the first phase of his trial as the guilt phase, and they also want to admit the photos of the crime scene. Now, it's alleged by the prosecutors that Mr. Dorman allegedly planned to murder his three sons for months, and then he reportedly shot his four-year-old son twice in their Monroe uh, Township home before shooting the seven-year-old as he tried to run away. The seven-year-old was wounded from behind when Dorman then shot him twice again at a close range. And after allegedly killing his two sons, Dorman then snatched his three-year-old son from his mother's arms and then shot him as well. Now, Mr. Dorman was also accused of shooting his children's mother in the hand during the triple murder. Now, Dorman's stepdaughter reportedly fled uh, the home on foot and found a neighbor to ultimately call the police. Now, if you may recall, we brought you the story literally months ago after it happened because they had the body cam footage of the police arriving on scene and Mr. Dorman just sitting on the back porch, as calm as could be. Yeah, a little disturbing. Anyway, so before the police responded to the scene, the boy's mother um, called 911 and said that her babies had been shot. The three boys were found dead in the yard. Well, Mr. Dorman was there sitting sitting next to a rifle on the porch. 
Now, Mr. Dorman has been charged with aggravated murder, kidnapping, and felonious assault, and the police um, have not disclosed a motive just as of yet into uh, this uh, past June's triple murder, and he remains jailed on a $20 million bond. Now, isn't that ironic? Now, listen, I'm a defense attorney, but you got to sometimes use common sense. Yes, crime scene photos are coming in. It's a homicide case. You get to see what it is. Now, is the judge more than likely going to limit the number of photos? Yes. Oftentimes, what do crime scene investigators do? Well, they take a, you know, uh, an away shot, a mid-level shot, and then a close-up shot. So the prosecutor will probably, out of those three shots, probably only get to pick one to show to the jury unless they can say what different perspective that it provides. Otherwise, guess what? It could be violating the rules of evidence of 403, that the prejudicial effect far outweighs its probative value and therefore potentially raising issues on appeal in the beginning. So let's face it, it's not a whodunit. He killed his three sons. Don't do anything that's going to jeopardize the case. Bottom line, sometimes you got to make arguments as a defense attorney to preserve the record. That's what his attorneys are doing. It's a death penalty case, but they're not going to win that one. At least not all of it. They're going to, the jury's going to get to see the crime scene as well. They should, because that's going to be even more impactful when it comes to the penalty phase. Once they're done with the guilt phase, get to the penalty phase to decide whether Mr. Dorman deserves the ultimate punishment. Next is the theory that the Murdochs did it. Now DOA in the Stephen Smith death case. Well, a pathologist claims that a single blow to the forehead killed the South Carolina teenager, Stephen Smith, who had ties to the Murdoch family. Now, Mr. Smith was found deceased on a county road back in July of 2015 with a seven and a half inch fracture to his skull, not far from the Murdoch estate, Moselle. Now, the 19-year-old's case was ruled a hit and run before being reclassified as a homicide back in 2021 after new evidence was brought forward by investigating the uh, shooting deaths of Maggie and Paul Murdoch. Remember, as you may recall, the police were searching the Moselle property and some vehicles, and they seized some additional evidence. We still don't know all the details about that, but it raised a lot of concern specifically to Mr. Smith's family as to what went on. So anyway, a forensic pathologist by the name of Michelle Dupree, who has performed more than 3,000 autopsies in her career, believes that a single blow to the forehead killed Mr. Smith. Now, she said that in an interview, and she states that because of the location and the size of the fracture, she believes that he was killed in the roadway, but she doesn't believe that Mr. Smith was struck in a head-on collision. Makes sense. The uh, good doctor states that the seven and a half inches um, is what explains what took place. She said the, all, the teenager also suffered another fracture to the back of his head when it hit the pavement, splitting his skull. Now, Mr. Smith was openly gay, and one of the many unfounded rumors which circulated uh, since his death was that he was somehow having a relationship with um, Alec Murdoch's son, Buster. It had also been speculated that Buster and friends allegedly beat uh, Mr. Smith to death with a baseball bat because he was in fact gay. Now, Buster has strongly denied both of these rumors and uh, stated that they are just 
frivolous allegations. And uh, he addressed the issue in the documentary, as you may recall, The Fall of the House of Murdoch, saying, I never had anything to do with his murder, and I never had anything to do with him on a physical level of any regard. Now, the good doctor says that the injuries don't match Smith being beaten with a baseball bat, and those types of injuries would have caused something that they would call pattern injuries, and she did not see that in this particular case. She stated that this is a linear fracture. She states that Smith's body did have a little road rash, but the doctor explains that that would be expected. She was also dismissive that Smith's body had been dumped there, as rumors had previously claimed. Now, earlier this year, it was also revealed that a rape kit had been ordered shortly after Mr. Smith's murder, despite his death being classified a hit and run, and an examination of his body for uh, the alleged rape was reportedly ordered within 13 hours of the discovery of his remains, according to one of the troopers who worked on the case. Now, Smith's mother, Sandy Smith, wanted a second opinion on her son's death for years and says all she wanted is peace in knowing what ultimately happened to her son. She stated, he's my world and I'll fight to the end to find out what's going on. So the mystery is even greater now because it does not corroborate the rumors that were taking place about a baseball bat. So possibly an accident. Let me know what you think. Next on the docket, one alleged serial killer gets advice from a convicted serial killer. That's right, the happy face killer also known as Keith Jefferson, says that uh, the accused Long Island serial killer, Rex Hewerman, well, they're now pen pals. Isn't that sweet? Now, Jesperson, who's currently serving a life sentence in Oregon for the uh, killings of at least eight women, has stated that he wrote Mr. Hewerman, who's also behind bars, and uh, told him to uh, confess to avoid giving prosecutors the chance to gloat about finding evidence. Now, Mr. Jesperson previously spoke about uh, the letter he wrote to Mr. Hewerman. Um, he did this uh, because he was talking to a podcast uh, about his uh, letter writing abilities. Well, now he's sharing the reply that he received from Mr. Hewerman with this same podcast. Now, Hewerman thanked Mr. Jesperson for his uh, words of encouragement and acknowledged that he had received many letters from others, just as, well, Mr. Jesperson had advised he would. Mr. Hewerman also added that uh, he's only written Jesperson back. Mr. Hewerman, in the response, did complain that of the harsh conditions in the jail, including bad food and subpar areas in which to exercise. He quoted, the message I'm sending him is to own it, is what Jesperson said. They want the letter to get to him. They want him to listen to this guy who is telling him how the system works. So when you finally get it, the police can go out and solve all of the other cases with him. So, like I said, Jesperson says, so that's what I'm telling him to do. Don't hold anything back. Details or a few more laying out there. You know, get into a routine. You already know uh, what your convictions are. You're set up and you're not moving out going to court. You're not doing this and moving back and going back and forth to court, and you don't have the jail shuffling you around everywhere you go for hearings. And he says basically uh, the food is different. The food is better in prison. You know what? He's What he's worried about is getting peanut butter on his plate. Well, he'll get larger 
There's no real defense here, according to Jesperson, and this is what we need to do. Let's just go ahead and make a deal, and then the lawyers come off looking like they made a deal. Well, that's interesting advice, Mr. Jesperson. Um, congratulations. I mean, you have eight bodies um, on you. That's swell. Mr. Heerman may not be so inclined in which to uh, just go in and plead guilty. That's his right. But hey, appreciate the advice, man. Appreciate the advice. Next, a lawyer gone bad. Take a look at this guy. Ronald Henry Lewis is accused of getting illegal drugs to inmates in a Texas jail in the most unusual way. It is alleged that the 77-year-old attorney was arrested Friday when he showed up at the Harris County Jail for a prisoner visit with police alleged saying, that Lewis was an attorney since the early 80s, had nearly a dozen pieces of paperwork laced with illegal drugs. Now, the Harris County Sheriff spokesperson, Ed Gonzalez, said that the attorney was actually quite a major supplier of drugs like ecstasy and synthetic marijuana, which Lewis allegedly laced papers with, then distributed them at the jail. Police say that uh, between July and November, Lewis visited at least 14 inmates with such papers, office often portrayed by Lewis as legal documents, and that he made between $250 and $500 per transaction involving the um, illegal paperwork. Now, Mr. Lewis alleged uh, drug smuggling was discovered after a probe that uh, took several months conducted by a new unit called the Criminal Investigations and Security Division, which was formed to look into a spike in drug overdoses at the jail. We're currently working with the Texas Rangers to determine if any of those narcotics introduced in the jail by Mr. Lewis contributed to the death of any inmate, the sheriff said. Now, Mr. Lewis has been hit with uh, two counts of bringing a prohibited substance into a correctional facility and was ultimately released on a $15,000 bond. Oh, I'm so disappointed with this attorney. He knows better. Seriously, let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I have tried to live by this, and these are the best ways not to lose your law license, okay? One, never met a um, client worth going to jail for and never been paid enough money to jeopardize your law license. You just don't do it, right? Uh, other simple rules, uh, don't sleep with your clients, uh, don't steal their money, and communicate with them. If you do that, pretty good uh, chance you're not going to get disbarred. This attorney, yes, you need to be immediately suspended. Um, if you are, in fact, guilty of doing this, you probably need to go to prison too. He is contributing to the problem of drugs in jail. I have had clients who did not have a drug addiction issue until they went to prison. Why is that? Because drugs are so prevalent. How do they get in there? Usually by dirty correctional officers. Sad to say, but that's how it gets there. He needs to be crushed at sentencing if he's convicted. Of course, we'll give him the presumption of innocence for now, but if he's convicted, crush him. And then finally today, our dumb criminal of the day. If the last case wasn't enough to be a dumb criminal. Anyway, please meet Mr. Philip McGraw. He allegedly entered his neighbor's garage Sunday afternoon and approached the neighbor aggressively before, well, punching the neighbor in the face. Then apparently both men were on the street when McGraw's stepfather, James Jones, 
pulls up to the house. Mr. McGraw got in the passenger seat of Jones' vehicle, and then they drove away. Well, the sheriffs attempted to initiate a traffic stop on the vehicle, but Mr. Jones fled, according to the police. Jones then drove to McGraw's home, and McGraw then fled on foot towards a canal behind the residence in the neighborhood in which they live. At some point, he allegedly jumped into a canal to avoid the arrest. And yes, so after swimming through multiple canals in an attempt to escape, Mr. McGraw was caught and arrested. Now, you can take a look at the body cam footage taken from the deputies, and it shows the canal in which the deputies overheard Mr. McGraw talking in a distance. Hey there, people right there. There's cops there, a deputy heard, is heard saying. What are you doing? Dude, what are you doing this for? Another deputy asks Mr. McGraw. Now, during his arrest, one of the deputies is heard reminding Mr. McGraw of a similar encounter with him just a few weeks prior. Two, three weeks ago, you ran from us, the deputy said. Same two people into your house when you had the warrant. Well, ultimately, Mr. McGraw was charged with burglary of a dwelling since he went into the neighbor's house with the intent to commit a crime therein, i.e. assault. He's been charged with battery and petite theft and resisting an officer without violence. And guess what? His bond has been set out $32,500. Mr. McGraw, congratulations. You are a dumb criminal of the day. And as we head into these uh, Thanksgiving holiday season, I think you need to pause and reflect for what you are thankful for. Thankful you didn't drown. Thankful the deputies didn't hold your head under the water. Just be thankful you're still here so you can go back and punch that neighbor again. Congratulations, Mr. McGraw. You made it. All right, everybody. Thanks for watching. We appreciate it. Like I said, hit that little notification bell. YouTube's been giving us a lot of hassle lately. The algorithm, there we they were unhappy with us for a while. So if you want to stick it to the man, the man being Google, YouTube, hit that little bell. All right. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving. We'll see you next week. We'll see you next time on Crime Talk.